The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. Well, hello, everybody. We're here with John Eustall today. And John Eustall is coming to us, well, from somewhere in northern New York, but he practices down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Did I get that all correct, John? That's correct about the Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Yes. All right. But you're not in upstate New York right now with that beautiful background you got going? Cause... Oh, I I thought you said nor- in northern Europe. <laughs> no. I don't know what I went to zone it out. I'm like, no, I'm not in Europe. Yeah, I'm in New York. New York. Yeah. I'm on the St. Lawrence. There you go. It looks yeah. lovely out there. So, John. You and I have been knowing each other a while, and I'm pretty stoked that you're coming to Trial Lawyers University for the first time, because I've been, I appreciate you allowing us to have time to hone our product and our program before somebody of your elevated status joins us in New York. But tell us about your decision to become a lawyer, how that happened. I really didn't know what I wanted to do after college. I moved back home and got a job at a law firm. I was just trying to make some money, and I really kind of loved it. I was uh, just the fax person. Back then we had fax machines and I delivered faxes every morning, but I asked for business cards that said fax control and they gave me business cards. And I just liked it, the camaraderie. I liked being in a law office and I decided to go to law school. And what kind of law firm were you working in at the time? They did uh, litigation and transactional work. I guess I would call it like a, a commercial law firm. And you went to, where'd you go to law school? I went to law school at University of Miami. That's where I'm from. Nice. And so you go through law school and now you got your, you take the bar and tell us about your career, where you started off after taking the bar. Right out of law school, I clerked for Judge Fay. He was on the 11th Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals. And that was kind of life-changing. He was a trial lawyer. He had been a trial lawyer before President Nixon appointed him to uh, the bench. And he just told all these stories about trying cases and representing real people. And I decided that's what I want to do. Wow. And how long did you clerk there for? One year, one year right out of law school. And then I went to work uh, at a law firm, law offices of Sheldon Schlesinger, where I met Bob Kelly. I worked on a case for about a year and a half. My first trial was kind of, along with Shelley and Bob, was kind of a, a big deal. It was on 60 Minutes and uh, it's a big verdict. And I think it changed how well, cards ha- are made. And What happened in that case? Because it's very rare that I read books due to my lack of general literacy. But I did read the book about your case, and I really liked it. And it usually it takes me months to read a book due to my attention deficit disorder, more of these shortcomings I have. But that book, I think I read in about two days. So tell us a little bit about that case. Yeah, so that was the first case I ever tried with Bob Kelly, my one of my current partners, and Shelley Schlesinger. And it was a horrible fire, car fire. A family was stopped at a toll booth. And they got hit. It was such a minor bump. They thought maybe a basketball had hit the car, but the car exploded. Little boy died. The rest of the family was really badly burned. And we went to trial because we thought it was pretty clear there was a defect in the car. And there were some secret documents that came out during the trial. That's why it was on 60 Minutes. Um, The 60 Minutes cameras were there almost the whole trial, local news cameras, national news. 
the verdict was all around the world. Somebody in uh, Japan called me and said he saw it on the headline in a Japanese newspaper. But there were some secret documents that came out in our case that showed that GM had done an analysis to see how much of the car fires were costing them. It was only costing them $2.40. We had evidence that the shield was going to, the fix for this defect was a fuel tank shield. It would have cost about five bucks and prevented all these fires. And GM had denied that they had ever done that kind of analysis. They denied that they had ever made decisions based on that analysis. Their lawyers had gone into court and said all these things and just wasn't true. They were lies. Yeah. So what was the verdict in that case on your first trial, John? The verdict was $60 million. The way comparative fault worked in Florida, the judgment was actually for $33 million. But on appeal, it got increased to $60 million because all of the injuries were from the fire, not from the crash, not from the impact. And then, yeah, it was eventually paid with interest. It was over $90 million. Well, that's a good way to start off your career. Yeah, it was my first trial. Longest trial in General Motors history, as far as I know, the largest verdict they ever uh, actually paid in full. And yeah, it really showed me that you can do a lot of good as a trial lawyer. I mean, I think cars are designed differently, not just because of that case. There were a lot of amazing lawyers in the fuel-fed fire litigation. And because of those cases, cars are designed differently now, and people don't burn to death in car fires. Yeah. Somehow I remember talking to Panish about this. And wasn't Panish involved in those type of cases back then and Joe Freed? Does that sound familiar or not really? I don't know about Joe, but yeah, Brian was working with Chris Spagnoli. Right. Uh, we, we, I went out there and looked at what they had before we got our verdict. Of course, the documents that we extracted that were national news, we gave to them and they used in their trial. Well, yeah, right. Because I think that's kind of what Panish is real bit. I mean, he was good before. But I think that was his launching pad. We got like a $4.9 billion verdict against GM. Yeah. Not collected like yours. You know, he never talks about what it was reduced to, but it wasn't. They didn't get $4.9 billion, but they did make a point and get a great verdict for to let the world know about it. So that but, was pretty but cool. But let me just say something about that verdict, even though it wasn't collected. That verdict put fear in the hearts, I think, of a lot of uh, accountants at car companies. He, whether it was collected or not, it was part of the reason why there's so many people walking around today who they don't even know it, but they wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for some of those, that litigation and some of those verdicts. Right. And just, you know, always drives home how important the work is that we do. Yeah. And so now you're partners with Bob, you, with Bob Kelly. And how long have you guys been going at it for together? Since about, we went out on our own in maybe 2000 and six so quite a while okay yeah and we both it was just the two of us at first right we were working out of my this place on top of my garage but it's grown to be pretty big these days and how many lawyers you got in your firm now uh about 15 it's a pretty decent sized small army there so that's great yeah so john let me ask you now about what would you say are the most important qualities to possess that you've seen in the great trial lawyers what qualities do they possess that's a really interesting question because my daughter's going to law school next year and I was talking to her about this. She leaves in a few days. But how do you know if you could be a good trial lawyer? And it's interesting because if you look at great trial lawyers, there are all different types of personalities. It's not like one personality. You'd say, oh, that person's too shy. Or No, no, no. Look at Rick Friedman, clearly one of the best ever. And there is no personality. You can be any personality. So then what is it? What does set trial lawyers apart? 
I remember when I was young, I heard Willie Gary speaking and he was talking about growing up and life was hard. And uh, he said, no one's ever going to outwork me in a trial because I know what it's like to work with your hands in the hot sun until your back's breaking. So I think that's one of the things is that you got to put in the work. You got to be a hard enough worker to learn the skills to to do the job because it's a hard, it takes a long time. I would say you should think about it as a decade after law school of learning how to be a trial lawyer. So hard work is one. Two is willingness to learn. Yeah, hopefully you're lucky enough to have a mentor like I did who can really kind of show you some of the magic so that you see what's possible and what you can aspire to. But you always got to be like trying to learn new things, I think. So that willingness to learn, hard work, three things. You have to be present in the courtroom. So I that's a skill you can work on. You can meditate. We used to say most lawyers try the case in the file. But if you want to be a great lawyer, you try the case in the courtroom, not the case in the file. And so what do you mean by that? Well, simple thing is, are you tied to your notes? Okay. You think the question, you're going to ask this question, you're going to get that answer because that's what the guy said in his deposition, this witness. And so if you're trying the case in the file, then you just assume that's what he's going to say. And then your next question, but you don't listen to the answer. You just move on, presuming he was going to say what it was. You expect uh, the defense, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, to come up with a certain argument in opening. So that's what you prepare the opening for. You don't adjust. I'll give you a great example. I was trying a case with Bob when I was young. Actually, I don't think I, I think this is just a story. I don't think I was there. I think it's kind of one of those like mythical stories, but it's a good example of you have to change it up. He had a case where it was a fall. It was a fall injury. And he had his whole case worked up and he walked in the first day of trial and in the courthouse, in the hallway, right near the courtroom was a sign, wet floor or something like that, or watch your step. And so the jurors had walked past that every day in and out of the courtroom every day of the trial. So he just changed up right then and there, his opening, his wadir, everything to they just needed a sign, watch your step. You make a million decisions during trial and either you're using the file as your reference or you're using your eyes and your ears and what is going on around you as how are the jurors reacting to what you're saying. The case in the courtroom, it's always substantially different than the case in the file. All right. That makes a lot of sense now. Thank you for clarifying. So my next big question for you, Mr. Ustall, is just like your daughter just is starting law school. Well, my nephew, his name's Harrison Shields. He just finished law school. And of course, he's been hanging out around with me now for about 10 years, going to all these different conferences, meeting tons of people. So of course, he's going to become a plaintiff's lawyer. So he's on the right track, but he needs guidance. And so let's say in New York, when he sees you, he comes up to you and taps you on your shoulder and says, Mr. Ustall, one day I want to be a great trial lawyer too. In fact, I have this head start. So I'm going to actually become a better trial lawyer than you. Unfortunately, I have no idea where to get started on this journey. And I have a job, but other than, you know, at a plaintiff's firm, or I don't know. What would you advise? If he asked you, what advice would you give him on becoming a great trial lawyer, a great plaintiff's lawyer? And of course, in today's world, everybody wants to get there as fast as possible too. So think about that too. 
the expedited process, what advice do you give? Would you give him or give your daughter? So the first thing I think is you've got to understand the rules of the game, the basics. How do you put a document into evidence? How do you uh, do an impeachment when a witness tries to squirrel away from something they committed to in their deposition? All the different dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of different things you kind of got to know about in the courtroom. You pick them up if you try a lot of cases. But today, in today's day and age, uh, young lawyers are getting less cases to try. And you need to practice them anyway. You want to practice your impeachment. So things like that, just the rules of the game, knowing the basics. I think you need to spend the, the time learning that. Okay. So number one, learning the basics. Yeah. The basics. Learn the basics. Okay. So we got it. That way we learn the basics of procedure. It helps a lot. I would strongly agree with that. What else? The rules of evidence, the rules of civil procedure, but it's also the basics in the courtroom. Like you don't just pull out the deposition and say, um, uh, you said something different in your deposition. You got to know legally what you're allowed to say, but then you also know how to maximize the impact of the lie or the change in testimony. So I'm putting all of that under basics. Okay. Secondly, I would say if you walk in and you're the best trial lawyer in the world and you walk into a case, you still are a prisoner of what was worked up, right? There's a lot you can change and that you have to change, but based on what's happening in the courtroom, but you're also, there's some things that cannot be changed. You have the case that you have, you have the witnesses that you have. So the second thing is, Creating the best possible case to bring into the courtroom, understanding what it is in the litigation process that creates a big case. My firm gets a lot of calls about cases that are getting close to trial and the defense isn't offering enough and they want us to come in. And I love that. I say, great, the trial's in three months. That'll be awesome. But I tell you, half the time we look at it and say, it's just too badly effed up. So it's not just in the courtroom that you make the verdict. It's all the workup. I'll give you an example on a traumatic in, a brain injury, maybe a one where the guy looks and talks and seems normal. It's very important to go out and develop fact witnesses who are have nothing, you know, they're not related. They don't want your side to win. They're totally neutral, but they can tell stories about the one. I had one case where we found the blockbuster clerk. So that tells you how long ago it was, but he used to rent videos at blockbuster and he would always forget the video. He had a brain injury when the defense was implying that he didn't. So figuring out all of the ways that you need to put the case together before you get in the courtroom, I would say that's the second thing. All right. So you need the evidence. You need to have a good case that's well litigated because, yeah, as I often say, without being politically incorrect, this isn't Trump world. You can't just make shit up. OK, you got to have evidence and facts. Yeah. For at least, well, hopefully for at least 60 percent of our jury. And what would you say the third thing? You can't call witnesses that aren't on your list or that you never met. You don't even know about. You got to go out and find witnesses. You got to do tests. You got to do the testing if it's a product liability case that you want to show the jury. So you can imagine there's there's a million things. Let me say it like this. I hesitate to use this word. I've said it when I'm teaching sometimes because it's the best word to make lawyers understand what they have to do. But it could be misconstrued and somebody could try to use it against me because the word has a double meaning. But I mean it in the sense of building something like an engineer, like a, a carpenter. You need to fabricate your case, 
right? The case is not something that you go and open a file. And sometimes when we have defense attorneys come over and join our firm, I realized the best defense attorney in the world is really still responding to the, the plaintiff's case. But the plaintiff is the creative artist. There are a thousand cases that could be brought on any one set of facts. The, the facts have to be understood. You have to go out like a detective and find the facts. But then you have to think like an artist. What is the case that I want to bring? And what do I have to do to build that case, to construct it? Maybe that's a better word than fabricate because it doesn't have a double meaning. All right. So we got to learn how to build our cases and be good litigators and have hopefully good people that are good at the litigation, the deposition, the discovery, the request to produce, the testing to help guide us along. That's two. Give us one more, if you got one more. The last one I would say takes the longest, but you have to be yourself in the courtroom because that's powerful, that authenticity. And jurors need to trust you, trust that you know what you're doing and what you say is accurate. So you have to be yourself, but at the same time, you have to understand everything that's going on, understand the ramifications very quickly of what's going on. It's just you build the experience to be comfortable in the courtroom and yourself and alive to the moment, alive to the moment that can win you the case, because people generally sleep through those moments. I'll give you one story I like to tell about that if you want to hear it. Of course, I want to hear it. Would that be pretty rude if you're the guest on my show and you want to tell a story? And I'm like, no, John, we don't need to hear that one. <laughs> I don't want to talking, but... Uh, the whole point is you're the guest on the show. You're supposed to hog all the time, John. This is what you do. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, you're going to like this story. So it, this story relates to a lot of different things that I've just said. I think it was maybe only the third or fourth case I tried. And again, this one was with Bob. We had one of the most feared automotive defense lawyers, I'm sorry, experts in the country. I think he made $100 million just from Ford Motor Company and just in a certain multi-year time frame. Is that good? So I was a young lawyer. Bob told me to write across. I stayed up all night going to the file, trying to figure it out. And the way he liked it was just give me 10 topics and I'll pick some of them. And each topic, I could just give him one or two pieces of backup for it. So this guy charged, uh, I think it was $800 an hour, which was a fortune back then. So the first thing Bob started with- <laughs> Back then. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, even today, but imagine when this was probably 20 years ago. So Bob says, uh, $800 an hour? That's how he starts out. The guy says, yeah. Is that what engineers get paid these days? Well, it's what I get paid. Uh, so he didn't really, really, it hurt him a little, but not much. So Bob's thinking about his next question. You got to be comfortable with silence in the courtroom. That's very important. Uh, you have to be willing to think and not be embarrassed that there's silence. So Bob starts thinking about what his next question is. He's looking at my list of, of 10 things about where he's going to go to next. And 10, 20 seconds go by. The witness must have gotten uncomfortable. And he goes, it just adds out of the blue. No question pending. Remember, the last interchange had been is that what engineers get paid these days? That's what I get paid. He just volunteers. And I resent the implication I'm being paid to lie. So Bob puts down my paper. It was garbage from then on out. He never looked at another piece of it. And the his cross was just about who said anything about being paid to lie. 
he made sure everyone in the courtroom understood the witness was thinking about being paid to lie. And every question came back to that for the next 15 minutes. And then he sat down and we won that case. So um, if he had notes, if he was looking at his next question, he might not have even heard that. If he hadn't been comfortable waiting to decide what to do next, it would have never had time to play out. So yeah, you've got to be alive to the moment. Listen, and he sees that moment. And I, I would say that's what won us the trial where most lawyers would have never gotten that testimony. And if they'd gotten it, they would have never, they would have just ignored it. Right. They wouldn't have heard it maybe because they were, their mind was someplace else because their lack of presence. Yeah. That's maybe what happened. So, right. you know, I've been sitting here behind the Zoom camera for like the last couple of years during the pandemic. I had a chance to really study the greatest trial lawyers in the country, trying to figure out what makes these people great. Why is one guy get a verdict for 10 million? And then the same case, the other person's getting 500,000. So it's basically the same case in the same venue. And so what I've determined, the three things that people, three skills or whatever they need to have to get great verdicts, because let's be honest, the only way we judge trial lawyers is by the size of their verdicts. It's just the way the world is. We didn't make the world. I didn't make the world. I just live in it. But I really think the evidence, you talked about that, right? You need to have the evidence. You need to have a good case, which means you got to have good litigation skills or you don't have the evidence. But once you got that big pile of evidence, you really got to have a good sense of trial strategy. And that takes time to develop. That takes years to develop that trial, that sense of trial strategy. Like which hundred pieces out of this thousand pieces of evidence do we need the jury to see and in what sequence? I think we learned that from watching webinars, maybe listening to podcasts like this, reading books, hiring trial consultants, trying cases, doing focus groups. But the part that I think that, and I think this falls in line with what you just said about being yourself and being comfortable is really training on the skills of presentation, getting up there in front of people constantly, be working on the skills of connection, the eye contact, controlling your facial expressions, your hand movements, your, you know, your voice control, all these little things, I think really add up a lot to that you have that quote unquote connection with the jury. So then, you know, when you're connected with people, you're relaxed. It's only when we're not connected that we feel like we're on stage or feeling judged. And then we're tense. And that's what I think the training is so important to train. And every, because I've been reading this book, Peak, I don't know if you ever heard of Peak. You ever heard the book Peak, John? The science of you know really high performance. Have you read the book? Yeah. Okay. So I have read it. All right. So then you under you know talking about deliberate practice and actually learning skills of a trial lawyer, just like Michael Jordan learned to play basketball, just like Tiger learned to play golf, just like Serena learned to play tennis. None of those folks just sat and watched the great ones or read books about them or studied theory. They all got a coach, got in the game, and worked on their skills before they got into the NBA, before they got to Wimbledon, before they got to the US Open. Trial lawyers are the weirdest animals that just think, oh, I'm just going to try more, try more, try more, instead of really learning all the skills they need so that when they get that opportunity to try the case, they get a great result, just like you got in your first case. You know, Because I think it it's changes so much a person's career when they start out as a winner as opposed to a loser. It's hard for you to answer that because you've just been winning for the last 25 years. But you know what I'm saying, though. I've had my uh, share of losses, but I absolutely believe in deliberate practice. I totally agree with what you're saying. You cannot do as well if you just wander into the courtroom and just start sputtering whatever comes out of your mouth. The only thing I would add is having a mentor going to trial is 
an even better educational experience than going to a classroom. And not to say, like, you got to take what you can get. And if you don't go into the classroom, you're never going to be as good a trial lawyer as you could have been. But when you work up a case and then you know every issue on the case and then you sit through an entire trial and see a magician in the courtroom. And I hate to use that word, too, because magician implies something sometimes like false. But what I mean by it is hunting down the truth and exposing it for everyone to see. You see someone do that and you see the magical ways of of exposing the truth. It expands your horizons in ways you never even knew was possible. And it's not really possible to get that just from a classroom because you have to understand the limitations of an actual case. You have to know all of the difficulties and have struggled with them yourself and then see someone come up with something even more creative. Yeah, but the, you know, but our challenge is there's not that many mentors out there like Bob Kelly's to guide to guide lawyers. And yeah, so without a mentor, this is a lot harder to learn. I mean, I didn't have any mentors and God knows I've been struggling trying to figure out this stuff for years. I had to study all these great trial lawyers because, you know, when you're 45 or 46 year old, you decide, oh, I think I'm a switch professional now. I'll become a plaintiff's lawyer for me to cripple a defense lawyer. Who wants to help me? You don't see a lot of hands going up like, oh, let me coach you, sir. Doesn't really work that way. But yeah, hopefully that's why I started Trial Lawyers University. So I could kind of indirectly get everybody to mentor me in my own little way, especially during the pandemic. Because unfortunately it came along, but you got to make lemonade out of lemons. You got no choice. Right. So let me ask you about your most recent verdict. I know you're pretty stoked about that. And as you should be, because that caused you to miss our last great event in Huntington Beach, California, which was, you know, in May, but Florida took precedence. So tell us about this Florida trial and, and how you got involved in it. So it was a breach of contract case. After the pandemic uh, happened, Florida, he's a I mean, sure, everyone knows who he is. Uh, he's got some great songs. He was looking, he had some time and they stopped touring and um, he had some time. He looked at some of his contracts and he had a sponsorship deal where he was like a brand ambassador for Celsius energy drinks. And there were some milestones in his contract in which if they were met, he was entitled to certain stock. And he started to think, this thing, I think it was selling well enough that I should have met these. Certainly, I want to see the evidence or the data on this. So he contacted our firm. He met with my partner, uh, Christina Pearson. She wrote a demand letter asking for the data. They didn't have any data. And so we started doing our own research and um, we filed suit. The contract was somewhat ambiguous. A lot of breach contracts usually are decided by the judge, but in this case, there were some ambiguities that couldn't be decided by the judge. So we had put up evidence, witnesses of what the contract meant. The jury determined, indeed, the benchmarks were met. And not only that, I gave them three options about, I said, I'd be happy with any one. The jury had to decide how to value the worth of the stock. And they picked the highest one, which was uh, around 80, 83 million bucks. That's a pretty good result. Let me ask you this question. You're going to be talking about this case in New York City. What did you learn from doing this case? Because you're not regularly a contract case guy. I've never lost a, a commercial case. It's a part of my practice. I love it. Well, I wouldn't say that. I hate it. But I never lost. So if the case is right, I'll, I'll take it. I like trying them once I get into courtroom. Commercial cases tend to take forever. And that's one of the things I want to talk about why I think 
most of the lawyers that go to this uh, New York event should consider getting into commercial contingency cases. But what I learned from it, as always, your client is very important. This was a someone that was a good moral person, and the jury knew that and agreed with that when it came down to weighing who was telling the truth. So I think even in commercial cases, even when you're dealing with a breach of contract, when there's testimony, the jury's got to weigh who's telling the truth, and having the right client is important. Absolutely. Besides weighing the truth and everything, in the commercial cases, because you said you know you learn a lot in the courtroom trying these cases, right? So mm -hmm. I guess what trial lessons did you walk away with from this case with? I mean, you know, because like you said, you're constantly learning. And even though your commercial cases are a decent part of your practice, but I assume every time that you, you get in there and you focus your mind, you get new nuggets of knowledge. You know how some people say, and I believe voir dire is critically important. You probably heard me teach on voir dire. And some cases can't be won after voir dire. But some people say, it's all over after voir dire. Some people say the jury's made up their mind after our opening. I always poll everyone in the courtroom, the court reporter, the bailiff, anyone I can get a hold of, the reporters that were there on this, this trial, the video people, everyone on my team, who's winning. And I can tell you that up until the day of closing argument, nope, everyone would say, I don't know. I don't know. It's ambiguous. That case, I think, was decided in closing argument. The jury decided it based on the closing argument. So don't ever forget how important closing argument is. There were a couple of moments in the cross-examination of the CEO of, of Celsius that I think uh, were critical. So as always, cross-examination is critically important. The, one of the issues was whether uh, there was a renewal of a, the contract or it was a brand new contract. And they had put out a press release saying it was a renewal. So I was cross-examining him on that. And he said, well, renewal, that doesn't mean what you think it means. It means that it's a new contract. It has the word new right in it. So he was trying to say that renewal means new. It's not a renewal. It's a new contract. And um, I made him pay for that, which I think was an important part of the trial. I would say one of the things I learned from that was from the mistakes on their end. You should always reassure your client and all the witnesses, tell the truth. I would say telling the truth is a pretty important thing for sure. For sure to tell the truth. Yeah. And hopefully the truth comes out in the courtroom, John Eustall. Exactly. So even if you have a client who's not the most honest person in the world, which you should be very careful of having a client like that, <laughs> it's in your best interest to tell the truth because this our system is good. Our system works. I, I've found that a lot in commercial cases. Commercial lawyers that I go up against don't trust the jury. They don't believe in the jury system. They talk down to them. I believe in the jury system. I believe the truth will come out. Join us September 20th to 23rd in New York City for TLU Live. We're going to have some of the greatest trial lawyers in the country coming from Brian Panish, Ben Morelli, Judy Livingston, Joe Freed, Zoe Littlepage, Rex Paris, and the list goes on and on. And not only will we have four lecture tracks, but we're going to have seven workshop tracks where you can work on and hone a specific skill in a small group taught by a great trial lawyer. The website is tlunyc.com. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. 
Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. Produced and powered by LawPods.